Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Over the last decade, we know and understand a lot more about the autism spectrum, but knowing more doesn't always translate to acceptance in the playground. Catherine Piraboom is the founder of Spectrum Support and a mum of three boys on the spectrum. She says that the response to children on the spectrum can lead to isolation and loneliness. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Now, tell me about your sons. How old are they and what are they like? So I've got, uh, as you mentioned, three gorgeous little boys who are now, uh, we've just had two birthdays. So they're four and a half, six, and now uh, just turned seven. Uh, And just like any uh, little boys, they love outdoor play. So swimming and getting out on the trampoline and scooters and things like that. Um, But uh, iPads, iPads, iPads and technology. (laughs) Oh, yeah. are a real interest for them and so maintaining that balance of um yes you can have a little bit of screen time but now it's time to you know get out and and sort of be active um it can be a challenge so you um so you have three boys that are on the spectrum and i know that making that discovery about your child can be equal parts relief and grief Can you talk me through how the experience was for you, especially after realising that all of the boys were on the spectrum? Yeah, so with Oliver being my eldest, I think that was really the the hardest pill to accept because we, Oliver's um, development was absolutely neurotypical. He met all of his developmental milestones. He was doing really well. Eye contact was great. His food intake was great. He sat and crawled and walked before what the developmental milestones should have been. And then between one and one and a half is where we really started to see regression. So he stopped pointing at objects. We had a little bit of mum, dad, and then it just, it all really stopped. And so by the age of two, we really clearly knew that that Oliver presented differently and we needed to, to go and do something about it. So Um, We went to the GP who then gave us a referral to a paediatrician and then we went down the process of of having him officially diagnosed and it it took a long time. We were on on a wait list for about 18 months because to do it privately was going to cost around two and a half thousand dollars and we just didn't have it at the time. Oliver and Joshua are 11 months apart And then Tyler was born when Joshua was only about three or four months old. So my boys are literally back to back. (laughs) So once uh, we went down that process, I remember there were three women in the room and when they said the words, I, I shut down. I absolutely shut down and I wanted to run out of that room. And it took several weeks for me to process 
it's kind of like a grieving process. You know, I, will he ever make a friend? Will he ever get invited to a birthday party? Will he have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? You know, will they go to the school formal, get married, have kids, live that fulfilling life? And all of these things just started flooding in and I was upset and then I I got angry and then I was grieving and then I went, you know what, I'm dealing with all of this, but my beautiful little boy hasn't changed. He is still the same little boy that I loved before that piece of paper and nothing's going to change. And so I went through that journey and I know a lot of people have gone through a similar journey. Joshua, when Joshi was born, I knew, retrospectively, I mean, I knew he was different from the moment he was born. From about day three, he was having really, really sensory overloads within still the hospital, the, the, the nurses' bells and the other children crying and, and Joshi from birth really presented his autism straight away we still didn't realize what it was because ollie hadn't been showing us any of those things at that time but we knew that joshy absolutely had challenges and then by the time little tyler was born tyler's development is is slightly different to the other two my other two have intellectual impairments that are very severe They've got global developmental delays. They also have uh, comorbidities, so eating disorders and and pica and a few other things that makes their challenges much more prevalent than our younger our younger son. And so Tyler's development, he really presented as quite neurotypical up until probably about the age of three. And then we started seeing some of the the little signs and I didn't know whether he was copying his brother's behaviours or whether he needed some additional supports. And sure enough, as he became his own little person, we discovered that absolutely he, um, he was on the spectrum. He's also a level three and he absolutely needed um, our, our, our attention and our support. So What does level three mean, Catherine? So there is a global standard, which is DSM-5, level one, two or three. And level three requires the highest level of supports. So whereas a level one, they may be able to talk, they may be able to integrate at school, have friends, but they still absolutely struggle in certain areas. My boys present with very, very high needs. So they're all nonverbal. They're not toilet trained. And we have, yeah, I mean, some children, my children don't present this way, but some children also have aggressive tendencies Uh, which even at a very young age, they can really hurt their siblings, animals, their their parents uh, or their carers. So, you know, level threes are very quite complex. That's a lot for any parent. How do you and your husband manage when you're caring for the boys? Oh, you know, look, I'm not going to lie. It's a roller coaster. And school holidays, 
are really, really hard. But, you know, the journey of any special needs parents, you, you really tend to find out very quickly who is going to be there for you and others who show their true colours and decide to walk away. So we had friends that we had for decades that just disappeared out of our life. We walked away from certain people who became very toxic and that that's family as well as, as friends. And so we don't really have date nights. We don't really get to go out and have a, a holiday or a night in a hotel for respite for the for the two of us and then sort of COVID-19 sort of threw everything up in the air because we started to engage a carer um, who was really great with the boys but then COVID kind of threw everything <laughs> around so we're very much looking to getting some type of normality back into our life and our our routine so we can as a couple ensure that we've got the quality time that we need as well absolutely now you want uh, other parents and carers to understand the spectrum a little bit better because like I mentioned in the introduction I think most people have got a better understanding of what the autism spectrum is than when, for example, I was a child, you wouldn't have known, um, we wouldn't have known much about it then. And you would think that would lead to more acceptance, but I, I, I get the feeling that when it comes down to it in the playground, when other children are around a child on the spectrum, that it, it's not as easy as it is on paper to explain what those differences are. And I'm wondering if we could go through some of those, um, I guess, behaviours that might cause some friction on the playground and how we might help our children be more accepting and understanding and inclusive of children like your boys. Because one of the things you said that it, I just really struck me was that a child on the spectrum may not get any invitations to birthday parties or even might have a birthday party and no one turn up. That's yeah. just heartbreaking to hear as a parent. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And it's, it's something that, you know, every special needs parent is concerned about. Will Will their child make friends? Will they be accepted? Will they be loved? And I think the more that we can explain to people who don't understand what autism is and some of those idiosyncratic behaviours that they may not normally see on the playground or at the shopping centre, then the more we can get that level of awareness to then move to an acceptance So to go through some of the behaviours, some very typical ones are the lack of eye contact. So you will find that um, somebody on the spectrum, if if you're asking them to do something or if they're really wanting to engage in something and they've got to concentrate on what, what the task is, they may avert their eyes but they're listening with their ears and they're intently listening. If you force that eye contact, then you force them to now stop everything else and focus purely just on making eye contact with you. And that can be really, really difficult for them to then engage in that activity. 
So eye contact is absolutely one thing. Can I um, ask you with that, Catherine, with eye contact, is it ever about as well a kind of intense shyness or that uh, eye contact is too obtrusive for some children? Yeah, look, there's been, you know, actually autistic adults who have sort of said that if you force us to, to look you in the eye, it's kind of like, you know, a bright light shining through our eyes and it really kind of hurts to have to concentrate that hard just to give you eye contact. But if you allow me just to divert my eyes slightly, then I can hear you and I can still then engage in that, that yeah, that encounter or that activity. So, yeah, eye contact is there. Look, absolutely. Will some people be shy? Yes, because social interactions are something that a lot of people on the spectrum find difficult. You know, being able to be brave enough to walk across the playground and say, hi, I'd like to play, play with you. Can I, can I, you know, join the soccer or the netball team or can I just play hopscotch with you or whatever it might be. So, yes, there probably is an element of shyness in there too. Can I, um, one of the um, behaviours that I think could be misinterpreted or um, not dealt with that well at school is if, as you mentioned, um, some level three children can display a lot of aggressive behaviour and... Mm -hmm. I know that if a child was aggressive or violent with my child, I'd probably tell them to stay well away from them. So that seems a particularly challenging situation, right? Because it's not the child's, he's not intent, he or she is not intentionally um, trying to hurt anyone. This is part of their neuro difference, neurological difference. So how do we help parents and children be okay with that or work with that in a way that's not going to isolate that child? Communication. Communication, firstly, at adult level between the educators and the parents. So, you know, you've got to understand if my, my boys are gentle giants and if I saw a child coming in an aggressive manner to hurt my children, I'd equally be upset. So, you know, we need to, at, a, at an adult level, have that open conversation and that, that open understanding. I know my children best. I know what's going to provoke them and I know what their interests are. Some kids might go up and just want to cuddle you, but they squeeze you so hard that a, a, a little girl or boy is going, oh, my gosh, that's hurting me. Please stop. Um, but the intent is actually in, in a loving manner. And so once you get that, that education between the adults and you understand, okay, this is how so-and-so reacts in a school environment. This is how they, they typically are at home. How can we merge that path and forward? So we're not going to provoke that particular aggressive behaviour in the schoolyard or in the playground. So there's always typically a trigger for some type of, of aggressive behaviour. It might be the alarm bells or somebody's crying or there might be a trigger there. Once you understand what those triggers are, then you can manage them. And it's not always just aggression towards another child. They could be self-harming. So if, if a particular situation isn't going their way and they're finding it way too overwhelming, I've seen five-year-olds 
bang their head on on the the kindergarten floor until they knock themselves out. But you've got to understand from the parents and carers what those triggers might be. And look, at that level, there's always some type of psychologist or behavioural therapist. Um, There is support units. So they're not going to be, if they've got those aggressive behaviours and those tendencies, they don't tend to be in the mainstream environment. They would be with a specialist, typically on the side. Some of the ones that are, you know, not as aggressive but can be a little startling, um, my boy, boys vocal stim a lot. And stimming is basically some type of self-sensory, a self-sensory thing that they do to keep themselves calm. So it could be flapping of the hands, which is a very typical thing. It could be making lots of noises that don't normally sound like Um, what we would typically hear. And those can be distracting. If you're sitting in a class and trying to learn and then little Jimmy over there goes, (laughs) you go, whoa, (laughs) what was that? And so if you get that understanding, even from kindy and preschool level, you can say that's what makes him become a better student. He needs to get that out. So once he gets that out, he can calm down and he can come back to learning with the rest of the class. What about um, something like you mentioned personal space in the, the list that you've put together? I guess, is that both wanting space, but also maybe being very close and up in someone else's personal space? Yeah, so my boys are actually really affectionate. And they don't realise their size either. So they can go up to somebody that they like and nearly put their whole body weight on them just to give them some type of affection. So personal space is really, um, yeah, it's definitely one of those those fun kind of behaviours. But look, a lot of people don't like to be touched either. So they will refrain from getting into the group. Um, because the group may present to be too loud, too much of a sensory overload for them. So they pull back from the group um, and don't want to be touched or don't want anybody in their space. And things like the type of food that somebody's eating, it might smell offensive to, to the person, even though it's, you know, a Vegemite sandwich, but that smell might really just be too overpowering for the little one. Um, it could be that the, the little princess has discovered Disney's perfume collection oh, and she's come to school. Those <laughs> <laughs> are awful. Uh, <laughs> and I get upset about those. So <laughs> She's come to school with, you know six weeks worth of perfume in one dose. And so, you know, those um, sensory things can sort of trigger as well with, with regard to space or personal space or the lack thereof. And yeah. that, that reads into uh, other sort of sensory sensitivities. Um, I think a lot of people have heard when the um, supermarkets were trying to find times that parents could shop with children on the spectrum so they were lowering their noise and people seem to have a good sense of that but how would you how would you help a child if you saw that they were a bit distressed from too much noise or light or how do you help a child like that 
So, look, schools and preschools now are really moving forward in their inclusion policies, which is just brilliant to see. So you'll find that in early school settings now that they've got decompression rooms. It might be a tent and inside that that little tent, they've got, you know, five or six cushions and it's in the back of the classroom or it might even be, you know, in a, just a slightly separate room to the classroom. And it gives those children time just to decompress, handle the, the situation. And then when they're ready, they can come back out and join the group. So even in, in some of the preschools, I've seen that they have those little areas, those chill out rooms and those chill out areas. And if you don't have one and you're an educator or a school or a provider, then please consider doing so because uh, it really can make the difference in somebody's behaviour if they can just take five minutes out to decompress, then they can come back and be an active member of learning. And that's what we all want as parents. We want our children to integrate and get an education. Yeah, there's, there's lots of wonderful things that schools can set up at minimal cost to help students integrate better. Now, there, there were more things on your list. We can't go through all of them today, but you founded Spectrum Support because you saw how hard it was for parents with children on the spectrum, both to be diagnosed and then to get the support they need. I'm assuming there's more information on your website if we, we put links in the notes of this episode. Look, absolutely. And look, our, our primary focus at the moment has been our law enforcement and autism training programs. So come to our website. We can give you some preliminary information. We can always point you to a specific support provider if you've got a, a need that's not being met. Uh, we are more than happy to do that. And, and Catherine, um, is, that, is that work that you're talking about kind of about um, self-advocacy? I know that that's something that parents really have to embrace when they have a special needs child. Yeah, self-advocacy is, is a really difficult one. And, um, you know, not every um, special needs child has neurotypical parents either. So you might have an autistic mum who has two autistic children or somebody who's got muscular dystrophy or, you know, there, there's other, you know, disorders or disabilities that also can come through. So, finding that advocacy group and that support group that can help you navigate things like finding the right pediatrician and the right GP and navigating your way through the NDIS and then finding the right speechy speech therapist and occupational therapist and things like that. So yes, self-advocacy is, is absolutely paramount. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. That's Catherine Piraboom. She's the founder of Spectrum Support and mum of three boys on the spectrum. And for more on what they do at Spectrum Support, you can check out the links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time. Oh,